if we're really aligning ourselves with this natural rhythm of getting into networks, working as a community of practice and learning from one another, and then just allowing new ideas and new possibilities to emerge, that's what our job as systems change agents really is, is to nurture those conditions for that pattern to happen. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. In today's episode, we're headed to Kansas City, Missouri to talk to Lauren Higgins. Lauren and I have known each other for a while, but we've never had the chance to sit down and talk about her work in systems thinking, which she has done for more than half her life. As you'll see, we dive deep into the philosophy and human nature in complex adaptive systems. Lauren shares her journey to becoming a systems thinker and talks about how she remains anchored and sane in the wild dance with systems. See if you can spot the moment in which she drops so much truth that I choke back some emotions as we talk about martyrdom and burnout. On that high note, let's go to Kansas City, Missouri. It is lovely to see you. I'm so glad you made the time to talk to us today. You're currently based in Kansas City, Missouri. I also know you're a citizen of the world. But if I were to come to your ecosystem for the first time, where would you take me? Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I think if I was going to introduce you to the Kansas City ecosystem, I might actually just take you on a walk around my neighborhood. I live in the historic Northeast. It's uh, an incredibly diverse uh, community. There's over 60 languages spoken uh, just in this area of the city. And I think it really shows a lot about kind of the historical economic realities of redlining, uh, but also of community I think unique community perseverance and neighborhood economics and incredible business ownership uh, around my neighborhood. So I think it uh, it would be a, a fun walk around the block. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Lauren, if I had to describe you to someone else who's never met you, I would probably say high-level thinker, intellectual, maybe philosopher, <laughs> incredibly stylish person, hardworking <laughs> traveling, passionate about democracy and, and creating equitable access to a lot of the things that, quite frankly, I take for granted. And then I just learned you're really into martial arts. Tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess after all, a lot of this thinking work, I've realized that uh, it's good to have some kind of vigorous exercise. No, I think um, martial arts, hmm, it's just a passion that I think I like how difficult it is. I, I like that. It's kind of like competing with yourself with other people. I like the strategy. Uh, I like that it's technical and challenging. And I think it has a lot to do with like coming to terms with fear. And there's something really interesting for me about that and like working with uh, overcoming your fears and facing them with other people in a very physical way. I've done the kimono, gi, and done grappling. So, you know, uh, jujitsu and wrestling with other people, that's fun. Um, but I've also done Thai boxing for a long time. So that looks like gloves, shin guards, uh, you know, traditional heavy bags and the Thai boxing ring and, you know, mouth guard and going head to head. Wow. And the little boxing I ever tried was incredibly exhausting. I, I think I couldn't stand five minutes. Yeah. Boxers are some of the most conditioned athletes on the planet. If you want to be able to go multiple rounds, you have to work really hard with your cardio, but also your general strength and your mental strength. Yeah, it's a lot. 
Which is a perfect segue into this season and this episode because we want to talk about the really slow and complex nature of our work of creating systems change hmm. and just what kind of mental and emotional cardio you need <laughs> to drive this change over years and sort of stay in the ring, continue to show up and really just stick with it and do the work. All right, let's jump right in. Yeah, let's go there. You have worked with some really large, impactful, powerful organizations. Um, you were with Impact Hub Network, the Kaufman Foundation. You're working with Democracy Now. So I feel as though complex adaptive systems and, and thinking and acting in systems is your bread and butter. And you've looked at a lot of the really big, difficult problems we're trying to solve in the world from different angles. Take me back to before you learned about systems thinking, if there ever was a time. For those of us who are not familiar with it, what's wrong with how we're currently tackling big, wicked problems in the world? I might offer sort of two parts of that story. Um, one is my, I can get into a critique about how we're not tackling or why we're not doing that. And I, I do want to talk about that. But your kind of the first part of your question is interesting. How did I come to this? And how did I start to learn about this? And I think that that actually has a seed into some of what we'll talk about later. You know, I knew I wanted to be supportive and help make positive change. And I felt that ever since I was young. And it's a drive... I think, to just seeing the suffering around me in the world and also um, and, and how I could be supportive in helping ease that, I essentially looked for all kinds of opportunities about how to learn how to make change effectively in organizations and in communities. And it probably wasn't until my early college years that somebody who was older and wiser than me said, Oh, I think you'd be interested in learning about systems change. And this was, you know, when I was maybe 18, it seemed very intellectual, very cerebral to me. I started looking at these kind of systems mapping and systems dynamics thing and thought like, Oh, like something in this resonates for me, but it seems, I don't know. It seems really heady. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. I got the, an opportunity to do a independent study in systems thinking. I knew it was important to what I wanted to do. And I found a woman who, who had taught a, a systems thinking class in Colorado at Naropa University, but who was also a cognitive scientist. So she understood brain development and how to teach, and she understood systems thinking. And I asked her if she would be my mentor in this independent study. And I'll never forget how it happened, because I think that this was probably the best introduction I could have ever received. Her name was DeJoy Coulter, and I remember our first class together. She said, okay, okay, you could read all the books about systems dynamics and system mapping and all this other stuff and systems thinking. But what I really want to teach you about is relationship and the relationship of your thoughts to one another and how you think about how things have a relationship to one another. So our conversations over a series of months were literally, she was patterning, helping me understand relationships. So she would say, okay, think about this idea. So I talk about one idea and she'd say, okay, now jump and think about something that's related to that, but isn't exactly that. And she would say, mm -hmm. okay, jump again, jump again. She's like, imagine that this idea is a tree. Now keep going to different branches related to that idea. And all of a sudden, I would see one idea that I would start with become this kind of complex, interconnected issue. She was teaching me how to think systemically without it being this overly complicated thing. And I think that that's really how I got started with this, is by going through that kind of early lesson. And she's like, now you can read all the books. That's fine. But this is the essence of it, is understanding the connectedness of all things mm -hmm. and your ability to see that. And how that informs how you live and work. Similarly, kind of to answer your other part of your question, uh, where you said, uh, what are some of the issues or what's kind of keeping us from yeah. that? And I would, I would generally say that 
we don't have great forums or ways for creating shared understanding, shared solutions, or shared action. And we really don't have a way of looking at how important relationship is and understanding how important that is. And especially in these days and times when I think we're, you could describe it, that we're in more of a poly crisis, right? Where it's not just COVID, it's not just a drought, it's not just wildfires or economic upheaval or climate change or a housing crisis, it's all of them at once. And there are these interconnected dynamics at the local, regional, national, and even global scales. And it makes uh, making sense of these complex interconnected challenges really challenging. And I think that underlying issue is that it makes makes it challenging to create shared understanding. And I think that that is one thing that we're struggling with in terms of how we're thinking about systems change and how we go about that. So I'll leave it there. What happens when we don't think in systems? What happens if we think linear, not looking left and right, not considering implications and effects What is wrong with looking at the world and problems in this very limited, narrow, linear way? Some of the, the effects of that are that it is reactive instead of proactive. It makes us focus, short-term thinking makes us focus on um, urgency rather than understanding and realizing that certain decisions require patience and more information. I think it keeps us from recognizing the implications of our actions might be beyond just ourselves. And if we had a more relational view, meaning it's really important that we think about future generations or what happened in the past even, or how this connects to other living beings on the planet, that we would recognize that a lot of the drive in short-term thinking or short-term returns uh, on effort undercut our ability to think clearly about others and often even undercut the quality of the decisions we'd be making now. I wonder whether this type of short-term linear reactionary thinking has contributed to so many of us feeling so anxious all the time and so constantly stressed. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just a certain part of us. But does that fit into how you're viewing what we're currently experiencing? Hmm. Where my mind went when I was listening to you is, I think this feeling of acceleration for everyone mm -hmm. does contribute to stress. You mix that feeling of acceleration with media And hyperexposure to everything that's happening in the world, that is just a great recipe for stress. I mean, our yeah. human nervous systems are not advanced or evolved enough to like receive all the input that we're getting now. That's just too much information. But then for those of us that care about interacting and with change, I think it's incredibly stressful because then you almost feel accountable. You can see it all, and then you take on this whole other level of feeling accountable and of service. And that, I think, is a whole other frame that can be, and I think is incredibly stressful for folks that are working with change. It piles it on. Yes. I do want to come back to that later okay. on. I think there's a lot Bookmark. there that we can dig into. Lauren, if you already mentioned so many crises that we're faced with and have been faced with for a few years and probably will face more of as we move forward. How else might we start solving those issues? What is the upside of thinking in complex adaptive systems? I can tell you the part of systems thinking that I feel like is the most useful in actually yes, thinking about change. Because I feel like there's a lot of jargon. Some of it's really useful. I do think we need mm -hmm. to learn some new language to talk about this stuff. There's kind of one core thing I would talk to people about if they're going to kind of learn how to do this and how to be thinking about it. I think our first question in working with systems is just to invite ourselves into some reflection about what can bring me into deeper relationship with my family, my community, and the world. How am I working 
in a way that will bring me into deeper relationship. Can you pause there? What do you mean by bringing someone into deeper relationship? What, what might that look like in, in the day to day? I think it's about looking at any, any issue that we're trying to change and literally finding the others, finding the people who also care about these things and working mm -hmm. and spending enough time to get to know who they are, what brought them to these issues, and building genuine relationships based on curiosity, mutual respect, and trust before we even think about making change. Like, Who are the others that have similar curiosities? So that's yeah. one way. Another way is also to have a relationship with the impact about what certain changes might imply. So being willing to look at, I think this change needs to happen, but that's only my perspective. And who would this impact, including the you know non-human world? Like yeah. who would this impact in my community or in the land here when I'm thinking about this? And then also I think relationality and relationship is also about looking at the past. What's been the history of the way that I've been thinking about? What's my relationship to that history? What's my own history related to yeah. this change that I'm looking at? I think those are different ways about thinking about relationship and the stories that connect us to the change work and the people that connect us to the change work. One of the concepts that I felt is the most important for systems thinkers or change agents to kind of think about is this notion of emergence. This is brought up in a lot of Margaret Wheatley's work. It's brought up in a lot of work by Adrienne Marie Brown in her uh, book, Emergent Strategy. If I was going to recommend anything to systems thinkers or people curious about that is to understand what emergence is. Just to explain it from my perspective and simply, is that emergence is something that happens in all living systems, from the cellular level to animals to all life, all organisms kind of come together and through the kind of magic of their interactions, kind of random interactions, new behaviors and new ways of working or new uh, evolutions come out. And there's a science around emergence. You can read about it. It's great. I think Adrian and Margaret Wheatley outlined these, the, the why we need to understand this. But the reality is, is that this planet has like six billion years of R&D about creating life and working with the rhythm of life on the planet that we can really harness because we are that too. And this idea about emergence, I think is really useful for change makers because I think it could take a lot of pressure off of us. We got into this very mechanistic, top-down, managerial, almost colonial and dominator model way of thinking about how change needs to be mapped out, predicted beforehand, and then executed. This is completely opposite to understanding how life actually works, or the language of emergence, which is looking at... What are the initial connections, relationships, and conversations that can be built, that build momentum? And then what are the emergence or the breakthroughs of change that happen from that? It is not a predict, command, and control idea. It is how life has been evolving and changing and creating new opportunities since the beginning of time on this planet. And I think that there is power in working with that. And I'll say specifically, Margaret Wheatley has, I think, given us the biggest gem here. Because what she says is this, humans are great at this. There's a way that humans can be in line with changing systems and doing emergence that's natural for us. She really just kind of points out three things. The first step is to build networks. If we want to be in line with emergence, we understand that networks are the kind of first step in that happening, making those relationships. And then naturally, she says, when networks form and people start learning from one another, then we kind of form these communities of practice, she says. Like people in the network start talking, they start sharing ideas, kind of comparing notes about what should happen. Then finally, and you can't predict this, and it's never been predictable, somehow after all of those interactions, 
It can create a system of influence or something will emerge. We know it will, right? You put enough ideas, enough people in conversation with one another, learning from one another, some change will emerge. If we're really aligning ourselves with this natural rhythm of getting into networks, working as a community of practice and learning from one another, and then just allowing new ideas and new possibilities to emerge, that's what our job as systems change agents really is, is to nurture those conditions for that pattern to happen. I remember when I was fresh out of school, ready to change the world, I had all these ideas of everything that's wrong in the world, and I knew, or I thought, I believed at the time, I have to get a really executive high-level job with an incredibly powerful institution and do all the research and get all the degrees so I could just roll out my plan for change over the world and just tell people how it's done because I will have figured it out. I'm going to roll it out top down. And if people just listen and do as I say, we will be better off. That was really intimidating. It really stressed me out because how could you put such a responsibility on a single person? And ever since I've learned about thinking in complex adaptive systems, I was like, oh, no, A, that's never going to work. Yeah. How could you have all the solutions? Lots of pressure for you and totally unrealistic. Ever since I learned about complex adaptive systems, it took so much pressure off thinking, oh, we're not supposed to single-handedly fix things. The approach, we really had it backwards, this idea of I see a problem, I jump to what I think is the solution, I'll just reverse engineer what needs to happen and then we can roll it out and it'll all go well and we'll fix the problem, which is now that I know better, <laughs> it's absolutely insane. And it has really helped me sleep a little bit better at night thinking or understanding that I am not the center of the universe, that my actions are not Im that impactful. And even if they are, it's going to fizzle out and depend on the external factors and all of the, all of the environment that I operate in. And somehow I think it took a lot of pressure off. And in a lot of my conversations with ecosystem builders, the ones who seem to be the most effective are exactly that, are in deep conversation and relationships with their community. They have built this community of practice around entrepreneurship or creating change in their community and really rallying the people who feel as passionately about it as they do. And they sort of go from there, which is what I think we often call the grassroots. There is something there, and I think it ties back to thinking in complex adaptive systems and understanding that we are a very small part of a larger system. And that I think Octavia Butler said this, everything I do will impact you and everything you do will impact me. So there's that constant... It's constantly evolving and emerging and changing, which is beautiful and leads to all this complexity that we're trying to grapple with. Wonderful. Thank you for giving us those three emergence bullet points that we can hang on to and sort of think through as we imagine that process evolving. Lauren, the million dollar question, is anyone already doing this well? Do you have any examples of organizations or individuals or movements who have embraced this approach and are actually making progress in solving a complex issue? Hmm. One of my personal favorite examples is um, this organization that I've worked with in Mexico, actually, um, called Colectivo 1050. They are really interested and committed to the history of and the preservation of the pottery artisans in Oaxaca, Mexico. What to me makes it a systemic in initiative are a few different things that I just keep coming back to. I'm really inspired by this project. Like the two designers that started it, who live there in Mexico and in Oaxaca, they started all of this work by deeply understanding what was going on in these communities Why were they being, you know, edged out of all of these markets by Chinese imports or different mm -hmm. things like that? What did that imply for the future of these very age-old traditions? Would they be able to survive in the current market? And what needed to be done? So what can we do together was their inquiry with the communities uh, to preserve these traditions and bring them into the modern market in a dignified way, and also not in a way that just 
made these communities a poster child for indigenous economics or whatnot, but really in a way that the choices were made with community. They formed a cooperative with these potters. This cooperative then really guided the decision-making about how they would think about markets and what they wanted to be making. That economic power with this group and also how they would be viewed kind of internationally with their products, I think is been incredibly embedded. Secondly, this group does an incredible job of communicating the deep and rich history and why that's important to preserve. And I think that there's a lot of dignity in that that is lost in most, I would just say most marketplaces to understand the roots of this place, why that's important, that we're not just giving you an object, but that there's deep history and preserving that is actually part of all of this. It's all connected. This is a relationship. When you buy these things or you support these artisans, it's actually deeply embedded in who we are and what this place is. And so for me, all of that feels, I think, very complete. There's economic power and decision-making by the community and then deep relationship with the place and the history and people. And I feel like that's been able to accelerate their change in terms of creating a new market for these products that were dwindling and couldn't compete before. They had, I think, a multi-tiered approach that I think has a very systemic, relational, networked approach that is a good example. Hi, friends. I'm trying out something new for season three, and I hope you'll join us. On April 14, 2022, I'll be hosting our first community conversation called Burn Both Ends. I want to invite you, the listeners, to help co-create this show, and I would really love your input. Burn Both Ends is going to be a conversation about the emotional and mental toll of driving social change in our communities. What does it mean to take care of ourselves? What's getting in the way? How can we mitigate the effects of long stretches of incremental progress? And when do we need to step away? What does a sustainable lifestyle mean for purpose-driven community champions? At Burn Both Ends, you are invited to share your personal experiences and help me phrase the big hard questions. In season three, I will set out to find us some answers. Come and co-create the next season of Ecosystems for Change. You'll find the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. Something that I keep hearing and when you talk about complex adaptive systems is the importance of starting with relationships. And in so many conversations I've had on this show, but also just out in the field, is this notion of let's build with our communities, not for them. And I think you have to have that first step of building the relationships and the willingness to listen and to be curious and learn to be able to build that foundation to do anything and then sort of go from there and define what value creation could look like. The second point I want to highlight is, you know, when we talk about complex adaptive systems, it's easy to think about solving climate change or global pollution and the loss of biodiversity. But complex adaptive systems are also, they don't have to be global, right? They happen in our communities every day. And there are, once you start doing some research, reading and learning about complex adaptive systems, I feel like you see it everywhere you go. You see it in the parking lot of your supermarket. <laughs> you see it at the water reservoir, like wherever you go. It's really this model of reframing how the world works mm -hmm. that I think is so incredibly empowering for change makers, ecosystem builders, anyone who's dissatisfied with the status quo and wants to figure out what role they can play in making it happen. And in so many cases, it's not figuring out what the solution is and then running towards it. But it seems more and more that it's always around having a conversation with people who are deeply invested in the topic and building out different solutions from there. And I think that example with the Colectivo in Mexico is a really good example of that. I think that that is a core thing. I, you could say that relationships and conversation are kind of like the core unit for emergence and working with complex adaptive systems. Mic drop. That's that's a great insight. It just Thank you. Keeps it simple. <laughs> like focus on that, you know, and from that, just trust that emergence comes from that. Just have those conversations. Helps you see the system. You see the system through conversation. That actually leads me to my next point. Why is it so hard for us 
to think in complex adaptive systems when really they're all around us. They're probably the reason we're here in the first place. Why does it seem to be so far removed a, a mental framework from how we go through life? What do you think? I think this really goes back to, and I'm sure, you know, people might have heard about this, but like there was a huge change that came around the scientific revolution and Cartesian thinking that has, has informed our industrial age thinking as well, uh, which is very focused on mechanistic, rational, linear thinking. This is very different than an ecological, networked, or even indigenous worldview that honors deeper connection, the existence of many layers of connection, multiple futures, plurality, deep diversity. <laughs> And anyway, I just think that we got really used to from you know being in our management schools, our project management mindset. We've, we've been taught that we can plan out, execute, and that kind of all issues can be treated as sort of simple, if A, then B, technical solutions. We know clearly with COVID or any of these other complex issues that that's not possible. And so that mode of thinking is being broken day in and day out. You can see it. Our systems just are not meeting the magnitude of the complexity that we're in. I would just say that we're still stuck in some old predict command and control ways of thinking that make it feel, I think, difficult for us to relate to how to really dance with change. We have to relax back into the power of our relationships and knowing that it'll be clear when it gets clear. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that we're not going to be able to plan everything out. We can kind of look at some of these rhythms And we can set intentions. Probably all we can do is we can get really good at building resilient communities, resilient relationships, good ability to talk and discuss and make sense, and set good intentions about where we want to go. And then we got to be in constant dialogue and kind of recalibrate along the way. That is so different in terms of a, thinking about how we do change than what we're taught in school And even how we're encouraged to strategically plan in organizations. Yet, we know that every time we make a strategic plan, it changes. Yet, we don't, we, we don't do the extra fact check to see if we should have even been making a plan like that in the first place. Our ways of thinking about that are quite broken, I think. I have grown so aggravated with the idea of making a five-year strategic plan. I'm like, you may as well throw it out of the window and spend the next two hours grabbing coffee and reading a good book instead of investing your time trying to pretend like you could predict what the market is going to be like, the world is going to be like, your workforce is going to be like in five years, let alone next year. It's absolutely insane. I think there's been a lot of advancement in terms of people thinking about systems thinking, but mm -hmm. I actually think that a lot of people still think about systems thinking in a very mechanistic way. They think about systems thinking in a way like, okay, if I can just understand the system enough, I can predict and control where it's going to go. And if I have a more comprehensive view and I can see the whole system, then my plan will be better. My solutions will be stronger. I'll be able to be more effective in controlling the outcome. That is the exact opposite of the deep lessons of this work. It's not meant to make you a better... Um, I don't know, like, I don't know exactly how to say that, but it, it's not meant to make you a better mastermind. If you're doing it well, I think you're able to dance more and work more with change as it's happening. But it's a, it's a far different view. And the quote I was going to share was by this gentleman, uh, David Snowden, and an amazing complex city science practitioner and pioneer. And he said, The strength of systems thinking is its recognition that human systems are messy. <laughs> They frequently need focus and alignment. Its weakness, or systems thinking weakness, is that it assumes that the design of that focus and alignment is a top-down objective-based process, so that a lot of people are still treating systems thinking as a top-down objective-based process. That really hit me. I was like, whoa. And he said, yep. the ambiguity of human systems is recognized 
But the basic concept of central control and planning still remains at the heart of a lot of systems thinking. I thought, wow, thank you for calling that out. Because even in a lot of systems thinking literature, not all, there's this managerial central control concept, kind of going back to what you were saying. I thought I was going to roll out my map for change. A lot of people think systems thinking is just a better way to do that instead of actually looking at what it fundamentally means about how we think and how we behave. And that's really what it's questioning. Systems thinking is not just taking a high-level view and thinking the more you know about the system, you better you can impact it. It's really the idea of complex and adaptive systems that is at the crux of getting it right or just duplicating the old way of thinking just onto a higher level or a greater scale. I couldn't agree more. Lauren, how can how can any one of us start thinking and acting more in systems? Uh, let's just return back again to this idea of uh, learning about the system or your environment mm-hmm. through conversations. That's a very simple way to think about how you would become aware of a system or systems around you is start having exploratory conversations with different people around a subject and learning, you know, from kind of like a human centered design perspective, like learning what motivates them, what their experiences, what the history is, and start to see like the tree I talked about, you know, have conversations and bounce around and start to understand start to see all the branches form around that issue. That's how you start to see a system as a systems leader or somebody who cares about taking a systemic approach. Start having those conversations, start weaving together the people and kind of building a map in your mind and through conversations and relationships with other people about what's going on. What do we understand about what we're facing right now with this particular issue? But again, it's just really, I would say, through conversation, understand the power of conversation, open, curious conversation with people as a way to start thinking about systems change work. This is an incredibly important point, Lauren, because like even in the past when you and I talked about who should be in the room, who should we be talking to, and being incredibly aware of my privilege and my lived experience being not representative of the communities that I live in. How are we really inclusive in those conversations? And I think when you say being curious and being open, that really means when you talk about how a certain issue affects someone else, you're not there to judge. You're not there to validate or or invalidate. You really need to come in with a sense of curiosity and willing to listen and understand, because I think otherwise you won't be able to make all those different connections as you're talking to different people. And it's almost like you're taking a flashlight and you're starting to shine a light where nobody's looking so that you can eventually see the whole picture. And I think what you said about the relationships and having those conversations is super important, that we need to be aware of who are we talking to, who are we not talking to, who should we be talking to, to grasp that complexity and really have meaningful conversations. Otherwise, I think we're going to stay stay on one branch of the tree instead of seeing that beautiful richness and diversity of everything else that's going on in the system. Yeah. And I would, I would just maybe go one click deeper with what you shared, which I think one way that systems change happens is building relationships across difference. That when I build a relationship with another person that has a different lived experience than me, If I build a true relationship with them, not like a showy transactional relationship with them, but if I actually listen and build a trusting relationship with them, I begin to empathize and understand their lived experience. And that relationship changes me. And I think that the degree to to which you allow relationships of difference to change you is an important unit of how systems change happens. So as we allow ourselves to be changed by others, as we Mm -hmm. build these conversations and relationships, and we don't come in, check to be as open as possible, just to listen for what is for people. How are things? Allow ourselves to be changed. I think that those are 
kind of the basic elements. And it seems almost too simple. That's another thing. I think systems thinking encourages us to be really complicated about how they think about this. But even like Peter Block, who's an incredible pioneer of community building, he said, I just organize chairs, move chairs around at meetings. That's what my job is. What he's really saying, though, when he's talking about moving chairs around in community meetings is he understands that how the chairs are positioned, how people talk to one another, how they build connection is the core of his work. I love a simple solution to a really complex issue. It is complex. We could really go into that whole other level. I get. I think that there are reasons <laughs> to get meta about it too. But when you say where to start, I think that that's a big part of it. Thank you for bringing it back to that point. Lauren, on the one hand, we've talked about complex adaptive systems at a global scale or even, you know, on a state level, whatever, these really big things to think about and that can keep you up at night. On the other hand, you talked about the emotional investment of building relationships, which I think is also, I don't want to call it hard work, but I think it still asks a lot of us to make ourselves vulnerable, to be willing to be changed by other people, like you said. No matter how you look at this work as a systems convener or architect or systems agent, it takes so much out of us to do this and to do it consistently and to do it with an open heart and an open mind and to be constantly learning. How do you sleep at night? How do you not get completely overwhelmed by the heaviness, the bigness of what's going on and your role in trying to make a difference? Mm, yeah. There was something that you said earlier in our conversation that I just maybe want to bring up again. Um, mm -hmm. It's about self-importance. And, and I notice that if I, if I feel really more self-important, like I need to make this change, there's sort of an ego that I think can get in this that also actually contributes to a lot of stress. Checking what I can realistically accomplish. I care a lot about, for example, the future of democracy. Well, I'm one person. What can I reasonably accomplish in my lifetime? And, and maybe there'll be a moment, maybe or maybe not, where some... Something emerges and I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm able to create a lot of influence, but maybe not. And I've had to come to terms with being okay with thinking about the quality of my life first and the quality of my relationships first and guarding that above all else and then giving the rest of the world and these challenges kind of from my overflow. <laughs> Because number one, I don't think a hundred years ago, even if I had a, the same desire to be supportive and uh, helping my community, I would never have been aware of all of these things. Mm -hmm. There was no media that would have showed me problems that were happening around the world. I also recognize my kind of current context as a hyper-connected, privileged Absolutely. person, and that it somehow makes us feel like we need to take the responsibility of all suffering and all challenges of all beings onto ourselves in this way. But most people actually don't even have the tools for how to work with that. And that's a lot psychologically. And then you see people getting compassion fatigue. This is such a tricky issue because you even have amazing people who become public servants who then over time are sort of twisted by the systems and then have a yeah. really hard time fulfilling on that. For me, I try to kind of decenter myself a little bit. I try to do, uh, try to not make it all about me. I can contribute as much as I can, and that needs to be enough. I think working with feeling enough and contributing enough and really believing that about myself is important. And then I have a very consistent meditation practice. And that helps me balance, I feel like my motivation to be of service, from a Buddhist orientation to care about the end of suffering for all beings, you could say, while also recognizing from a very humble perspective, how to be at peace and at rest with the way that the world is. Those practices help me every day. It helps me balance what I can contribute to 
So I wouldn't go very far if I didn't have a powerful spiritual and meditation practice that really helps me with this question. But also, I think, you know, not feeling so self-important. I mean, who am I to actually feel like I'm going to make that change, you know, and I'm not saying that in a self-deprecating way. I'm just trying to taper this anxiety that you're kind of speaking to. The moment you talked about making yourself less important in this whole spiel, my shoulders just relaxed. It's like, it is not on any individual's shoulders to create that change. I find that incredibly relieving. And I think it is what, for the longest time, at least for me, kept feeding that martyrdom of, if I'm not going to make this change, no one will, nothing is ever going to change. How am I ever going to work enough? And so it's easy to work yourself into a frenzy of trying to solve problems. And you'll never get there because, as you said, who's any one of us to solve these big things? So I think it's a recipe for burnout in this space if you don't understand and embrace your role within a complex adaptive system. And I feel as though you've just given us permission to take care of ourselves first and serve our community and solve problems from the overflow that we're able to create. But we'll never be able to create that if we're burning the candle on both ends. Change is happening no matter what. And if you're a shriveled up, dried up husk of yourself and you have no vitality to offer, what are we doing? If we're zapping ourselves, I think martyr is a really appropriate word. I deeply believe in being of service. And I know that that's why I'm here. It's core to me, but from my vitality, that's what I can offer. And then having a realistic understanding of what that would be, you know, I feel like we're getting so many mixed signals about the scale of how we can affect change. And then we kind of put rock star people on pedestals who had these kind of powerful moments where they were able to gain a lot of influence. And then we all think that change looks like that. But Change is happening through our relationships, the quality of them, the quality of our conversations every day. That's how humans do it. And I feel like we could focus more on the quality of those things and the quality of our self and, and our lives and set deeper intentions about how we can change and then let, let life take care of itself. Just ride the ride. And that's something any one of us can do. No degree needed, no matter what career you're in. That's super easy. So systems change really does start with us. It sounds like a bumper sticker, but <laughs> which we clearly need. Yeah, where's that bumper sticker? <laughs> but, it's, but it's really something that each and every single one of us can start in our communities, in our families, in, in our neighborhoods. One of the problems with systems change, in my opinion, is it's very kind of dissociative. When you start reading books about this stuff, It feels like it's this co big, complex way of working and thinking that like isn't in you. You're like, wow, this seems like a really like a complex technology. Like, how do I learn how to do this? Rather than actually realizing that all it is, is it's like in your body. It's how you make relationships with people. It's how you connect. And it's how we connect about issues. That's systems. Like, that's kind of the essence I think overthinking it kind of gets into this disembodied, disassociative thing that I think is actually a bigger problem overall around how we think about change. Wonderful. Thank you. As we're coming towards the end here, before we go into the rapid fire round, which okay. I love to do with everyone, okay. I just want to let people know that they can connect with you on social media. You are L.O. Higgins on Twitter. They can probably find you on LinkedIn and connect with all of the wonderful work that you are doing. Yeah, I would also offer that uh, people want to uh, find me on our most recent website called democracytogether.org. You can learn a little bit more about some of the work systems work that I'm doing in communities. Okay, perfect. I will be sure that all of those are in the show notes so that people as they're listening can check it out, get connected and learn from the work that you're doing. All right. The rapid fire round, Lauren, I'm going to give you the beginning of a sentence and you get to finish it for me. <laughs> okay, great. Great. Systems thinking is? Learning to dance with emergence, being relational, 
is Dancing with Change. I love it. Are you referring to the Dancing with Systems article by Donella Meadows? I love it. Yes, that's definitely influencing what I'm saying. Yes. And I would recommend that uh, as a resource for listeners. Great. Um, a systems thinker that everyone should know. Gosh, can I pick two? Yeah. I think for me, two of the uh, two of the women that I just think are seminal in this work are Danella Meadows, who wrote Dancing with Systems, and also Margaret Wheatley. So Margaret Wheatley wrote this beautiful book called A Simpler Way. I hope you can see that. Maybe it turns out backwards. But this book is the most gentle, understandable way to understand how change happens in complex systems. You could read it to a child, but it's also so straightforward. And it's just like, here's how life works. What if we organized like that? Love that book. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Which was going to be my last question. So you've already mentioned A Simpler Way by Margaret Wheatley, Dancing with Systems by Donella Meadows. Is there any other resource that has influenced you so much that you would recommend it to someone else? I'm going to leave it there. I think those two are very good. Two's enough. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I want to close out with this thought and leave you and the listeners with it, Lauren. You said a little bit earlier in the conversation that systems thinking and thinking in complex adaptive systems can be really dissociated from our lived experience because it's complex, theoretical, academic in a way. And someone really should write a book about the simple approach to systems thinking and how we can approach that as change makers, ecosystem builders, people who care about their community. So I'm just going to soft plant this seed right here, right now in front of the whole audience and see what you might get up to over the next years. But I'm very <laughs> excited about the work you're doing in the many hats you're wearing. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity just to explore what we're really talking about with this seemingly complex or complicated topic and how it can really be nourishing for people who want to make change and thinking about it from some different angles. I've really appreciated talking to you. Thank you. Be sure to find out more about Lauren's work at democracytogether.org and connect with her on Twitter and LinkedIn. I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Tuscarora, Shakori, Saponi, Okanichi, Lumbi, and Ino people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.